Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Jeff Yulden. You know, God never has a big event take place in the world, but that he first warns about it. For example, you can't remember the flood without associating it with whom? With Noah. And Noah preached for 120 odd years. You can't associate the coming of Jesus the first time without John the Baptist. And whenever a big event has taken place, God has always had a warning for those who live at that particular time. And in these last days, God has a warning too, and I'm going to have it read this morning. The, the reason that we exist as a church. Revelation 14, 6 to 12 from the New King James Bible. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with our loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives a mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So that is the, uh, the centerpiece of why we exist as a church. Take those three messages out of uh, our thinking and we are no longer Seventh-day Adventists. And God has written that message in the book of Revelation and that message, is, as we noticed, is to go to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. You see, the way the devil works, and we see this in the book of Revelation, is that the devil always works by counterfeiting the truth. Now you understand what a counterfeit is. A counterfeit is something that looks like the real thing, but it's not the real thing. It's, it's, the purpose of it is to deceive. When people print counterfeit notes, it is to deceive people who receive them into thinking that it's real, genuine money. And so the devil has counterfeited every single doctrine there is in the Bible. And the book of Revelation exposes that. That's why the devil hates the book of Revelation. In fact, let me read you the devil's counterfeit to the three messages of Revelation 14. Just come over to Revelation 16. 
Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. And this is what it says. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. How many? Three. Just as there are three messages that God has, so the devil has three messages and they come out of the mouth of frogs. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are the three counterfeits to the three angels' messages. The beast, the prophet, the false prophet and of course the dragon. Verse 14 says, For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to that battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then Jesus adds, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Watch. Watch. Just as the three messages of Revelation 14 culminate in the return of Jesus, so these three counterfeit messages culminate in the coming of Jesus. So it's the devil's counterfeit to God's three messages. Just as God has three, so the devil has three. Now, I advertised this morning to talk on the year that changed the modern world. What year is that? Most people say 2011. Well, you know, the the towers in New York and so forth. Now, they did have an effect on the world. There's no question about that. But I don't believe that it changed the modern world at all. It may have changed a few things here and there, but certainly hasn't changed the modern world. I'm thinking about a year that has absolutely changed our way of life today. And the year that I'm going to suggest and then I'm going to prove to you is the year 1844. Heard that year before? 1844. That is the year that has changed the modern world. Now, just to give you a background quickly to uh, prophecy, if you come back to Daniel chapter 8, I'm just going to read you some, an interesting statement that I'm sure you are familiar with. Daniel chapter 8, at least I hope you are. Daniel 8 and verse... Well, if we pick it up, verse 13. Daniel 8 and verse 13, it says... Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Now listen, if something is trodden underfoot, what would that be indicating? If I was walking on something and I was treading it underfoot, what would that indicate that I regarded that as? Would I regard that as important? Would I regard it as sacred? No, I wouldn't be trampling it underfoot. I wouldn't trample the Bible underfoot, nor would you. But here, Daniel, the angels are concerned in heaven, and Daniel is writing here and he says, um, 
How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Now, that's the reason why, before I became an Adventist, I had never heard about the sanctuary. Never. I was brought up in the Presbyterian church. I'd never heard a sermon. I'd never heard any discussion. And the and over the hundreds and hundreds of people that I have baptised over the years, I don't think a single one has ever told me that they understood anything about the sanctuary before they came in contact with the three angels' messages. Because, as the Bible says, it's been trodden underfoot, which means that it's been rejected, neglected, and absolutely forgotten. And I might go so far as to say the sad thing is that there are many Seventh-day Adventists who know little about the sanctuary too. And that's a tragedy because the sanctuary was given to us to help us to understand the plan of salvation and what's going to happen at the end time. The whole great controversy story is wrapped up in the sanctuary. And the Bible says that this is going to be trodden down and the angels ask the question in verse 14. And I haven't got time to prove this now this morning. That's not the purpose of what I want to talk about. But I want to remind you of this, this uh, important prophecy when it says, And he said unto me, under 2,300 days, prophetic days or years, then the sanctuary will be cleansed in some Bibles, restored in others, vindicated, restored to its rightful place. In other words, for 2,300 years, the sanctuary is going to be trodden down and truth is going to be trodden down. Not just the sanctuary, but the truth of God is going to be trodden down. Then at the end of that 2,300 days, prophetic days or years, the sanctuary is going to emerge victorious and truth is going to emerge victorious. And so it brings us to this uh, year, 1844. And God has always had truth and the devil has endeavoured to divert people's attention from the truth. That's how he has counterfeited the truth down through the years. And you will remember, of course, that Prior to October 22, 1844, Christians from all different denominations like the Baptists and the uh, Charismatics and the Evangelical Christians and Presbyterians and Methodists and Anglicans and Catholics, they all were the ones who set a date for the coming of Jesus of October 22, 1844. I want to remind you that no Seventh-day Adventist has ever ever set a date for the coming of Jesus. The people who said that Jesus was coming on October 22 were the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Anglicans and the Catholics. Now, I'm not deriding them at all. They were good, sincere people. They loved the Lord. But when... Jesus didn't come back on October 22, 1844. What do you think happened? They were bitterly disappointed. They were bitterly disappointed, to say the least. 
I don't think we could ever imagine how disappointed those people were because they sold up their properties, they sold their businesses, they put it all into the work of God because they were convinced that Jesus was coming in October 22, 1844. But he didn't come. And as a result, they were dejected. Some left Christianity altogether, and you can imagine and understand that. They were so devastated, so disappointed, they said the whole thing is a sham. And they walked away from Christianity. Others said, look, the Bible is not wrong. It must be our misunderstanding of some things that's wrong. And they went back and they began to study. And four years later, in the year 1848, they called together what has been known as the Sabbath Conferences, four years later, in which they tried to search out why they had a misunderstanding. And as a result of those Sabbath Conferences in 1848, they devised a theology, an understanding of the Bible, and they made amazing discoveries. Let me put on the screen now some of the great doctrines that they discovered in the Sabbath conferences in 1848. First of all, they discovered the sanctuary. Because up until this stage, no Christian understood the sanctuary. And so they rediscovered the sanctuary. This is then was followed by, as they studied the sanctuary, they became to understand the second coming of Jesus. And so they began to really push and and explain the the second coming of Jesus. Then they understood um, the the great truth on the state of the dead. As they studied the Bible, they came to a conclusion on man's soul sleep. And then they uh, made another discovery, and that was the spirit of prophecy that God had given to the church this marvellous gift of the spirit of prophecy. And it's these five pillars that the Seventh-day Adventist church is based on. Five great pillars. And uh, they went over and over and over again, and that's what makes a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, it is some of these very teachings that there have been some who want to downplay Some feel embarrassed that we have a prophetess. And so they want to downplay it. Others feel that all this emphasis on the second coming of Jesus, we're like crying wolf all the time. And Jesus hasn't come yet. And we're still saying he's coming. His coming is near. I remember an elder at the church that I was going to when I was young. He said, you'll never finish Avondale because uh, he didn't mean that I... um, wouldn't be able to cope with the study. That was what, what he wasn't talking about that at all. What he was talking about was that in the four years, Jesus will be back. That was a f- few years ago, let me tell you. And uh, some of our youth are embarrassed by some of the stands that we uh, take as a church. And so they try to play it down. On the other hand, there are wonderful youth who have studied the Bible 
and today are being revived. And they're being convicted strongly. And God is going to use those young people to bring in great reformation uh, in the church. And so this message has a context of the sanctuary. And we must never misunderstand the great truth on the sanctuary. And uh, the truth is never without conflict. The devil will make sure of that. And no matter what stage in history you might like to, to talk about, Old Testament or New Testament or in the last days, whenever truth is presented, the devil is there to counterfeit it and to, and to bring in conflict. And if there's no conflict, that shows that the devil is not concerned about it. Get the idea? In fact, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 says, And the woman, or the, the dragon, was wroth with thee, woman, and went to make war with thee, rest, yes, her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. God's last great church is going to have two outstanding characteristics. One is they will be talking about the Ten Commandments because the Bible says it, who keep the commandments of God. And secondly, there will be an emphasis on uh, the testimony of Jesus, which Revelation tells us is the spirit of prophecy. Those two great pillars are what the devil is after to attack. And uh, it wouldn't surprise anyone, I'm sure, to know that um, the devil has worked out a strategy and he called all the angels, the devils, the third that, that listened to him. And they had a big conference. And they said to themselves, how are we going to counter these three messages of Revelation 14? And the first thing that uh, one of the imps suggested was that um, they bring in a different theology, a counter-theology. And uh, they ever listened to that and he thought, well, that'll get some, but he realized very quickly that those who studied the Bible are soon going to see the difference between truth and error. And so that's not going to, uh, to deceive the world at all. But um, it would deceive some. And so um, they then thought, well, what about if we bring in a paralysis of those who are giving the truth, but we will make them so involved with the world that there'll be a sort of a lukewarmness, even with those who give the truth. They'll be so occupied with the world and so forth, but they're still preaching and they're still teaching and they still believe the truth, but there's a lukewarmness among them. They haven't really got fervency. They're not really convinced in their hearts, otherwise they would be sharing the truth. And Satan thought that was an excellent idea. And I want to have a look at these strategies this morning because uh, they're very interesting. Now, what was the significant year we were talking about? 
1844. I want you to listen carefully now as we go through this because as you know, there are some among us who have suggested that 1844 is a non-event. I'm sure you won't be convinced of that by the time we're finished in another half hour. Because what I'm going to reveal to you and what I'm going to show to you is that 1844 is the most significant year of the modern world. In fact, in August 1844, a man by the name of Karl Marx, ever heard of him? And Frederick Ingalls met in Paris and formed a lifelong relationship. And on November 19, 1844, Engels wrote to Marx this statement. Listen. We are at present holding public meetings all over the place to set up societies for the advancement of the workers. By a large majority, everything Christian was banned from the meetings. He continues, the criticism of religion is the prerequisite of all criticism and we are working for the abolition of religion and for real happiness. So he's saying, if you want to have real happiness, then you accept the teachings of Marx. Now, if that was true then, all nations in the world that have followed Marx ought to be happy, the people ought to be happy and living in utopia. I don't have to prove to you that that's not true. And uh, so they set up this Marxist system which has brought so-called happiness to the world. And this is the first strategy that the devil has brought in. Of course, this is not going to deceive everybody, but it's going to deceive some. And we still have Marx right here in Sydney. His teaching. We find it today in the trade trade unions. We still have the hammer and the sickle. And we've seen some of the the, uh, misappropriation and the unappropriate uh, activities that's been taking place in the building industry in this last week. And of course, it's not surprising that uh, Penny Wong of the Labor Party, which is really a branch of the uh, trade unions, has been advocating, and if the Labor Party had got into power, and we can be very thankful they didn't, but if they'd got into power, they were going to attack the very freedom of religion and try to bring in the idea, because as you know, she is um, a lesbian. And she, she uh, wants to go along with that style of, of life. That's perfectly all right. If she wants to do that, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But I do have a problem if they're going to legislate to attack religion, to attack the freedoms that uh, are so important to us. And I'm not trying to be political here this morning, not at all. But we've got to be, be factual and, and look at the issues that are going on in the world. Because not all is right. And so this is the first thing that the the devil tried to attack. 
And people today listen to the rhetoric that comes out of the trade unions and to try to uh, think that they can uh, get to the top of the pile without any, um, any relationship to God. Then there is the intellectual. The devil had a strategy for them. Give me a date now. What's the date? 1844, remember? Marx and Engel, 1844. The very year that God raised up his message, Marx and Engel were getting together to formulate this anti-God teaching. Then the devil had a trap for the intellectuals. And in this very year, 1844, heard of Charles Darwin? Do you know in 1844 was the year that he began to write his book, The Origin of Species? The very year when God had a message to worship God as the creator, the devil brought in the absolute opposite. That's when the theory, modern theory of evolution, began in the same year. Check it up. I invite you to, uh, to have a look and, and investigate some of these uh, facts. And I must say that I just find it very difficult to see how an intellectual person who's at least got some honesty about them can believe in th the theory of evolution. It's just nonsense from beginning to end. And the uh, Dawkins and Hawkins of our society, one was, of course, teaching at Oxford, the other was teaching at Cambridge until he died. Um, all were teaching this uh, idea and they formed a group that they called the Brights. The idea is that if you believe in the supernatural, you're not bright. This is what these fellows teach. In fact, D Dawkins made this statement. God almost certainly does not exist. Have you ever heard such nonsense? Let me just repeat it. God almost certainly doesn't exist. What nonsense. What a statement. Either he exists or he doesn't exist. Is that right? Not almost certainly because he's too scared to say that he doesn't exist at all. So he makes that foolish statement. And, uh, and not everyone, of course, was going to fall for that either. So uh, the devil now invents another strategy, a perversion of truth. What's the year? 1844. And a man by the name of John Nelson Darby comes onto the scene and he begins to teach. He's a, a biblical person, that is, he, he, he loves God in his way. He loves God, but he brings in a perversion of truth called dispensationalism. Ever heard that? Now, dispensationalism, let me explain for those who are not familiar with the word. Believe, the, the dispensationalists today believe that God has dealt with, diff, with his people down through the years in seven different ways. There's been seven different periods of the world. That's what's called the seven dispensational periods. Get the idea? I'm not going to go into it all now. It's not necessary, but... But that began in 1844. And dispensationalism says that there's a difference, bringing it down to our day, between the church and the Jews and Israel. 
And they say that the church, is, it's the church period now until the tribulation and the church is going to be raptured away before the tribulation and then God is going to deal with the Jews. Get the idea? That's going to be then the dispensational dispensation of the Jews. The same as now, it's the dispensation of the church right at this particular period in their view. And uh, so... Um, um, this came from Jay and Darby. Now, it's interesting that he didn't invent it. It was invented by a Roman Catholic priest and his name was um, Manuel Lacunza who lived in the late 1700s um, and um, into, uh, he died in 1801. He was born in Chile, in South America, and uh, he went under the uh, pseudonym Ben Ezra. And he wrote in Spanish, of course. Uh, and he wrote a book entitled The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and in Majesty. And a, a, a young man over in England got hold of his book that was written in Spanish, translated it into English. His name was Edward Irving. And he brought this into the English-speaking world. And it's interesting that in his church, that's where modern speaking in tongues began in this period. And J.N. Darby took this doctrine, and I want to say to you today that practically every evangelical church today in Australia and around the world, like your Baptists, Pentecostals, all of the, what we call the evangelical Christians, pretty well to a person, all believe in dispensationalism. And the most popular teaching about dispensationalism that you've heard about today is called the secret rapture. You've heard about it. It's, it's, it's right through the churches and it came originally from the Catholic Church to counter the Reformation, to counter Luther and the, and the great reformers because those reformers taught exactly what we believe regarding the coming of Jesus. But then it was changed. And uh, as I said, the vast majority of uh, Christians today do not believe in the coming of Jesus like we understand what the Bible teaches. Give me a date. 1844. Some wrappings began to take place in a place called Hydesville in New York. In 1844, four years later, the Fox sisters moved into that building and modern spiritualism was born. That's where it originated. And uh, I meet some people, as I said, who think that 1844 is a non-event. I want to tell you something. The devil doesn't think so. That's why he's gone to such efforts to make sure that every conceivable doctrine that's a perversion of truth began in the year 1844. And God doesn't think so because God said that he was going to raise up his message in 1844. The only people who think it's a bit of a non-event are some foolish, can I say, Adventists, who have been misled horribly misled and it's a tragedy and that's why I'm talking to you about this this morning 
Then another perversion took place. In the mid-1800s, a man by the name of Joseph Smith, ever heard of him? And the Mormon church arose. And Joseph Smith was murdered in the year 1844. And uh, the Mormons basically believe that um, uh, we are divine and that we are of the order of Melchizedek. And that perversion has, has continued to go around the world and unfortunately some people believe that that's truth. So we have another perversion of truth. Then a spiritualistic society was formed called the, the uh, Delta Kappa Epsilon, or DKE as it's uh, Known, there are uh, 56 active um, chapters both in North America and in Canada. And this invaded the universities because, you know, when you're intellectual, you've got to be a little bit above everybody else. So this appealed to them, the spiritualistic uh, emphasis. And uh, it started in Yale College in 1844. Interesting. You've all heard of Yale. That's when it began in 1844. Then we have the Baha'i faith that began in Iran, which uh, grew out of the Shiite branch of the Muslim faith. And this faith was uh, proclaimed by a man who called himself the Bab. And he believed that uh, Moses was a prophet Jesus Christ was a prophet, Muhammad was a prophet, and he was the final prophet. And the Baha'i message uh, has infiltrated around the world. We have a Baha'i thing out here near... Um, Mo, um, in Mo, on uh, Monavale Road there. You, you see the, uh, the, the building. What year did that begin? 1844. You check it up. The very year when God's message arose, the devil is bringing all these counterfeits, all appealing to different groups of people because the devil doesn't mind what you believe if it's error as long as you don't believe the truth. So he has brought up all these different errors so that it would be a diversion away from uh, the truth. And that began in 1844. Then around 1844, between uh, the middle uh, of the century, be between 1844 and 1848, two other movements arose. One is the feminist movement. Heard about that one? Feminist. That arose then. And then the ecumenical movement arose in that very time. All of these issues all come to light during this period. And Satan has brought a counterfeit for everything. Now, let's, I want to go back to the year 1844. The Millerites were uh, preaching, and of course, they were Sunday keepers. William Miller was a Sunday keeper. And Rachel Oakes, you can see a picture of her there, confronted one of these Millerite preachers and... Uh, his name was, um, I jotted it down here, it uh, was um, Frederick Wheeler. And she said, Frederick, 
What about the Ten Commandments? And Frederick Wheeler was an honest man and he began to study it. And in 1844, the first sermon was preached on the Sabbath by Frederick Wheeler. And the very year when God's truth was to be restored, not only the sanctuary, but the truth was trodden down, God was now going to bring back the great truths that had been part of uh, his message for many, many years. Then in 1844, Charles Fitch discovered the truth on soul sleep. And in 1844, we have the emergence of the spirit of prophecy. All of these great truths all came to, uh, to a head in 1844. Now, sometimes people say to me, well, Jeff, do you think that there's going to be another gift of prophecy before we get through, before Jesus comes back? Alan White's been dead now for many years. Over 100 years, actually. Do you think that God might bring forth another prophet? Well, in order to understand and to answer that properly, I think we need to go back to the type. Because you see, the, the, the Advent message is based on the type of the Exodus movement. All the truths that we believe are all found in the Exodus movement. When God brought his people out of Egypt, to, it was a reformatory message, brought them out so that they could be faithful to him. They had, they'd been in captivity for 400 years. What do you think happened to the Sabbath in those 400 years? What do you think would have happened? Do you think the generations after the first generation were still keeping the Sabbath when they had to make bricks seven days a week? They'd forgotten about the Sabbath. By the 400th year, everyone had forgotten the Sabbath. Every, every truth that the people of God once knew had been forgotten. So when God brought them out of Egypt, he brought them into Reformation. And so he gave them the Ten Commandments. If you read the Ten Commandments, it starts off by saying, I am the Lord your God has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because they had had thousands of gods. The Egyptians worship anything that moves. Cats and crocodiles, hippopotamuses, frogs, anything they worshipped. Now God brings his people out and says, I am the Lord your God that has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. And remember the Sabbath. And so were the type. As we look at the type, and Moses brought the children of Israel out and uh, Moses died before he took the children of Israel into the promised land. Is that true? Just on the border, he died. But before he died, he wrote everything down, including the health message. Isn't that right? The health message is not some newfangled idea that Adventists have just cooked up. This is part of God's message. He gave it in the type. That's why he fed them with manna. It was a vegetarian diet. For some of us, did you hear what I said? A vegetarian diet. And before he died, he wrote it all down. 
And the people of Israel, from when he died, had all the instruction written down that they were to follow. And that's exactly the same in the type. Sister White died on the borders of the promised land. But she has written everything down and it's your job and it's my job like Joshua. Our jobs are the Joshua's and the Caleb's to be faithful to what's been written. And uh, just as Moses was raised in a special resurrection, wasn't he? Is that true? Yes. Moses, where's Moses today? In heaven. Special resurrection. So I believe, as, as Ellen White talked about, the, some of the pioneers are going to be raised in that special resurrection, according to Daniel 12, 2, to see the Lord come with Caiaphas and some of those others who are going to be raised to witness the return of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said to Caiaphas, you won't see me again until you see me coming in the clouds of heaven. So Caiaphas and those who crucified Christ are going to be raised to witness his return. And so some of our, our pioneers are going to be raised. What a wonderful day that will be. And then the sanctuary was rediscovered in 1844. As I said, you look at the writings of all these other people that have lived in the past, I don't care how, how, how good they were, John Wesley, Martin Luther, they never understood about the sanctuary. That's why you'll never ever discover it by reading their writings. I'm not saying we shouldn't read their writings, but what I'm saying is that that's not where we go to find final truth. Even though they wrote many good things, they didn't have all the truth. And the devil has counterfeited this. And then the Lord laid upon those people a burden to share the message. Because remember, Revelation 14 says this message must go to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Morse? Charles Morse? What's he famous for? He invented Morse code. Have you heard of Morse code? That's where it gets its name from, from this man Morse. He was the first person they uh, assembled in the uh, capital in Washington, D.C., in the Supreme Court, and his friend went out down to Baltimore, not far from the headquarters of the church, went down to Baltimore. And there he sent on a telegraph those 19 letters that you've heard of, and he said, what has God wrought? And his friend, Albert Vale, sent back the same message. What has God wrought? That was the discovery of the telegraph. What year was that? 1844. When God gave the people a message to be taken to every nation, kindred, tongue and people, that the very year God allowed the telegraph to be discovered so that the message could be begun to be taken. And of course, since that time, we have seen marvellous discoveries that have taken place. And by the way, Samuel Morse wrote far more on the books of Daniel and Revelation than he ever did about the telegraph. 
even though that's what he's known for. He's a, he was a Protestant who loved the Lord and who loved the Bible and studied the Bible and wrote so much about it. No wonder God trusted him to discover this uh, marvellous thing of the telegraph. And it's interesting that the Columbus Zenia Railroad, the first rail, railroad built in Ohio, was opened in 1844. And if you know anything about the railroads back in those days, that's when things began to move across the world with the discovery of the railroad. And God was opening up the world for his three uh, messages of Revelation 14. And of course, the, uh, the devil has tried to attack this message. And I want to say this. In my experience in the church, once you've got questions in your mind about the truth of God, evangelism dives. Because why would you want to bring someone into something that you've got questions about? Is that true? You're not going to share something that you're not quite sure of yourself. Is that right? And that's the purpose of the devil bringing questions and, and bringing uh, uh, doubts into people's minds because he wants to kill evangelism. Because our responsibility in this world is not just to meet here on Sabbath morning, wonderful as that is, and I love coming here, and you love coming, to, coming here to church, and so you should. It's wonderful to meet with God's people and the social things together. I want to encourage you with one thing. I've talked to Andrew about this. When I went to Stanmore, they had lunch once a month. Oh, they said, we couldn't have it every week. I said, brethren, if you want your church to grow, you need to have Sabbath lunch every week, not just once a month. Why? Because that's the time when social action takes place. One of the reasons why our church is growing in Stanmore is because of the lunch. And I tell the church members that the lunch is just as important as the preaching. Because we are not isolated. We just can't come to church and then go home. We need to socialize together. We need to, to and when new people come to church, we take them into lunch and we talk to them and encourage them. That's not possible if you don't have lunch. I want to encourage you. Will you invite me back again? <laughs> I'm just, just telling you what I told my church when I first went there, and they had the same program that you've got. And I found out because I said to Andrew, Andrew, is there church lunch? Oh, no, he said, we only have it once. Oh, I said, come on. <laughs> I'm not going to say any more. Listen, I want to read you a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. She says this. As the Lord's people show their determination to follow the light that has been given, the enemy brings all his powers to bear to discourage them. But they are not to give up because of the difficulties that arise when they try to follow the counsels of the Lord. So when difficulties arise, and they will, the devil will make sure of that, we are not to be discouraged because the Lord is with us. And we can be as certain that this is God's truth as the sun will rise tomorrow morning. This message God has raised up. 
And when I look at all the things that uh, happened in 1844, I am amazed. This shows to me that the devil hates 1844. That's why he's brought all these counterfeits in. And in these last days, God is calling for us to be faithful, to give this message, to share the message, to bring others into our, into our family so that they can understand the joys. Just this week, one of our new members at Stanmore I'm talking about now had a heart attack. And he's had a very rough life in the past, um, Drugs and, yeah, many things. And uh, he just recently, I had the privilege of marrying him to one of our members in the church. He was baptised 18 months ago or so, but he just married a month or so ago. And then he has this heart attack, and I said to him this week when I was talking to him, I said, Michael, I believe that if God had not brought you into the Adventist message, you would be dead now. Because the heart attack that you've had, you would, have, you would have died from it. Because he was living on the streets and so forth. Now he's got a, a good wife who looks after him. And uh, he's got uh, the care of the church, the church members phoning him up and inquiring, having a prayer ministry, praying for them every day. That family part, that, that bond that lies together and brings us together is something that is the most wonderful thing in the world. That's the reason why I believe that belonging to the church is so very, very important. Because it might be Michael this week, but next week it could be you. Or it could be me. We could be involved in an accident. We may have good health, but we might be involved in an accident. Whatever it is, the church is there to lift us up. And I know that you value that. I can sense that there's a real family here in Hoxton Park. You can feel that. You know, when you come into the church, if there's a closeness in the church, you can feel it. You don't have to say anything. It just, it's obvious. And I felt that this morning as I came into the church and I sat in Sabbath school and I listened to what was said, you soon pick up everything. And that's why the church is so very, very important. And God in these last days is calling us to be faithful because Jesus is coming soon. And the message that he has given to us is watertight. But he requires our hands and he requires our feet. And he requires our time to do it because he has chosen us to be his evangelists. 
He could use the angels. They'd do a much better job than any of us. But he realized that that's not going to help us. That's why he's asked to use you. And he's invited you, he's invited me to be participants in this uh, wonderful work. And I want to encourage you today, as, as Andrew leads you in evangelism and so forth, that you will support it. Because it's very, very important. We need to grow our church. We shouldn't have all these spare seats. I tell my church, we've got too many spare seats. We've got to fill them. And if we pray and work together, God will bring us in contact. People will just come in out of the woodwork. Where did they come from? I don't know. But they're here and they become part of our family. That's the privilege that it is to work together with God. This message was made available by Hoxton Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Hoxton Park SDA Church. That is Hoxton, H-O-X-T-O-N, Park SDA Church. We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. As the word was preached that Jesus was coming soon, very soon, the movement gained traction and momentum. Whilst there were doubters and scoffers, the numbers of those waiting for Jesus' return swelled. The movement was at its strongest in the northeast of the United States of America, though it was by no means limited to just being an American phenomenon. Before the days of email and internet communications, God's Spirit was moving on different people around the world as they studied His Word and came to similar conclusions. In England, a preacher named Edward Irving proclaimed the soon return of Jesus. In Germany, Johann Bengel. In South America, Manuel de la Cunza. This was a worldwide revival, fulfilling the text in Daniel 12 verse 4 that says, at the time of the end, men would run to and fro and knowledge would be increased. Knowledge of the Bible, but in particular, knowledge of the books of Daniel and Revelation. The believers initially expected Jesus to return in the spring of 1844, and when he did not, this produced some disappointment, but they were greatly encouraged when Samuel Snow's studies revealed the prophecy pointed towards October the 22nd. This brought great revival amongst the believers as they wanted to put their wrongs right and be ready to meet Jesus when he comes. They wanted their lives to show evidence of their faith. Some sold their houses, others closed their businesses, some farmers left their crops in their fields, and many others got baptized.
Charles Fitch was a minister who baptized many people in the autumn of 1844. And unfortunately, on one occasion, because there were so many people to baptize and he spent so long in the chilly New England waters, he caught pneumonia. He died on October the 14th, but due to the faith that he and his family shared in the soon return of Jesus, they believed they would see him in just a few weeks. His obituary would spell this out. The believers in the locality of William Miller's farm gathered on his property to wait for Jesus' return and stood here on this rock, today known as Ascension Rock. They believed they would ascend to heaven. When Jesus did not come, they suffered a bitter disappointment and their hopes were dashed. They had hung their lives on the belief that Jesus was coming soon and now he hadn't. Was their faith in vain? Was it presumption? Could they recover from the embarrassment, ridicule, and shame they would face? Henry Emmons later said, I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, but after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. My natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick, with disappointment. Hiram Edson later commented, our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. The believers would now be challenged to live by faith, to hang on to God and to trust his promises when they didn't know how, to have faith in the moments of darkness and to trust when it doesn't seem to make sense. This would be their test and it's a test that comes our way as well. Let us remember when it does that his eye is on the sparrow and he watches over us in the good times as well as in the tough times. view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.